This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. As he approached the flats, he saw blood on the ground and looked up to the railings of the wall that enclosed the courtyard at the bottom of the block. The near-naked body of a man was impaled on the railings. His head was facing towards the building and his legs were hanging down towards the street. There was blood all over the place and the man was obviously dead. The porter rushed to get a doctor who, as he approached the body of the man, caught sight of Helen's body, fully clothed, lying nearby. This is Red Rum. Stories focusing on the true victims of crime. The following is quoted from McLean, Canada's premier current affairs magazine. This article was published on September 22nd, 1980. The party was over. The candles had melted into stubs and the apartment of British surgeon Richard Arnott and his wife Penny was filled with the stench of stale cigarette smoke and alcohol. It was around 4.30am on May 20th, 1979, in Jeddah, where Penny Arnott says she made her way across the slumbering bodies of guests and onto the balcony of the sixth floor apartment to watch the sunrise. Then, she looked down and saw a horrifying spectacle. On the ground lay the body of Helen Smith, a 24-year-old British nurse. Nearby, impaled on a railing, was Helen's boyfriend. Dutch sea captain Johannes Otten. Both were clad in only underpants around the knees. They had been guests at the Arnott's all-night party and, from appearances, had fallen off the balcony while making love. But the affair did not end there. As more details were unearthed in the following months, a scandal emerged involving wife-swapping, drunkenness and possibly gang rape and murder among British expatriates. Last week, speculation reached a high point as two British diplomats involved in the affair were recalled to London for questioning. It was around 2pm on the 20th of May 1979 when ex-police officer Ron Smith's phone rang. It was his eldest daughter. She said, I've got terrible news, Dad. Helen's dead. The police had just called at the house of Ron's ex-wife to tell her the news. Helen, Ron's youngest daughter, had died in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Ron was stunned. He put the phone down and just sat there, staring into space. It must have been a mistake. They'd got the wrong person. There'd been a misidentification. Ron picked up the phone again and called the foreign office, where the duty officer gravely confirmed that Ron's daughter was dead. She had fallen from the sixth floor of a hospital where she worked as a nurse. That's all they could tell him at this stage. Helen was, by all accounts, a professional, hardworking and sociable young woman. she trained for two years as a nurse, passed her exams with flying colours, gained some practical experience in the UK and then was recruited by a hospital in Jeddah. Helen saw this as an exciting prospect, allowing her to live in another country, another part of the world and broaden her nursing knowledge and accelerate her career ambitions. She was also hoping to enjoy the social aspects of mixing with different people. She was a good nurse and very popular with both patients and staff, 
Everyone liked her. Now, she was dead. Ron kept phoning the foreign office for news, but they couldn't or wouldn't tell him anything more. The next morning, one of Ron's sons phoned to say that he had called in at the foreign office front desk that morning and spoken to the duty officer, who had told him that Helen had not fallen from the hospital, but from the balcony of a sixth-floor flat opposite where hospital surgeon Richard Arnott lived with his wife. And Helen wasn't alone. A man who was a Dutch sea captain had fallen with her and also died. A number of people who had been at the flat were arrested by the Jeddah police for possession of alcohol, strictly forbidden in Saudi Arabia. Then something strange happened. Ron called the foreign office to try to get some more information. This time he was put straight through to the senior foreign office official dealing with Helen's death. Ron explained what he knew. The foreign office official became furious. Ron should never have been given that information because it was classified. Now that the information was in the public domain, the newspapers would get hold of it. He demanded that Ron say nothing to the press. It was vital that all inquiries were referred to him. There was no word of condolence or sympathy for a father who had just lost his daughter in terrible circumstances. The Foreign Office were only concerned with controlling the story and limiting the information the public were given. Ron got no further information from the Foreign Office at this stage, except that Helen's body would be returned to the UK in the next three days and Ron would have to pay the cost of transportation. Helen's body would be taken to a chapel of rest, although Ron and his family would not be allowed to see the body except to identify it because of the confidential nature surrounding the circumstances of her death. Ron was confused. As an ex-police officer, he had some understanding of the procedures that were meant to be followed in the event of an unexplained death. The Saudi police would need to make inquiries that would take much longer than three days. What about an autopsy to determine the precise reason for death? Ron thought about this for a while but couldn't make any sense of it. What was going on? A death shrouded in mystery. The Foreign Office trying to control the story. No proper investigation, no autopsy. It was then that he decided he would go to Saudi Arabia himself and make some inquiries. The Foreign Office really wouldn't like that. Five days after Helen's death, her body had not been returned to the UK, just as Ron has suspected. Ron flew into Jeddah. The Foreign Office knew by now that he was coming, but nobody met him at the airport. Ron had to find his own way to a hotel, and the next morning he called the British Embassy. Eventually, at about 1pm, Francis, a senior Foreign Office official, arrived. He was accompanied by a superior attitude and a condescending manner. Whilst always seemingly polite, Francis spoke to Ron as though he was an unwelcome interruption to his busy schedule. Francis had fallen into the trap that many others would in the succeeding weeks and months, that of underestimating this down-to-earth, straight-talking, determined Yorkshireman. Francis drove Ron towards the block of flats Helen had fallen from so he could see the site of her death. Once there, Francis left Ron in the car and went to collect Richard and Penny Arnott's children. Richard and Penny Arnott were the hosts of the party that Helen had died at and had been arrested. 
They were being held by the Medina police and Francis was going to take the children to the police station so they could see their mother. Because Ron was travelling with Francis, he found himself at the police station too. Whilst the children were seeing their mother, Ron met the officer in charge and asked if he could speak to the father and host of the party, Richard. The officer agreed and he was brought from his cell into the courtyard, still bound hand and foot. Richard explained the reason for the party. He said that it was a leaving party to say goodbye to a member of Harm Salvage boat crew who were working to clear debris from the harbour. They had become friendly with the Arnots. The guests had arrived about 8.30pm, 11 people in total, five or six divers from the boat crew, the host Richard and Penny Arnott, a couple who left early, and Helen and her friend, a tugboat captain called Johannes Otten. Richard decided, a little bit before midnight, that he needed to go to bed, even though the party was still going. He had a surgical operation to perform the next day and he needed to get some sleep. His children were already asleep in another room. Richard's wife Penny stayed up with the guests, most of whom must have left during the night. Richard said he slept soundly until sunrise, when he was woken by Penny and one of the guests who was still at the flat. They had then gone out onto the balcony and looked down to see the bodies below. At this point, the interview was terminated by the guards and Ron and Francis were asked to leave. They dropped the children back at home and as Francis drove towards Ron's hotel, Francis told Ron he'd booked him on the first plane back to Heathrow in the morning. It almost seemed as if he was saying there was no need to thank him for all the help he'd given Ron. Ron looked at Francis with surprise. Then he broke the news to Francis. Ron had no intention of going back to London. He was going to see his daughter's body, talk to people who knew her and were involved in the incident, and only when he was satisfied he got to the truth would he leave. Francis was at first shocked and then angry that someone who he considered his inferior should question the arrangements he had made. The British Foreign Office could not have relatives of the deceased interfering in the affairs of the Saudi Arabian state or the police investigation or the British government. There was no telling the damage it might do. Ron would have to leave the next day, he said. Then Francis paused and thought for a moment. His attitude changed. He told Ron not to worry. The Foreign Office would make all the necessary arrangements. He might even be able to swing it to get the Foreign Office to pay for the return of Helen's body to the UK if Ron agreed to leave Saudi tomorrow. And, Francis said in the most persuasive tone he could muster, he personally promised to keep Ron updated with any developments there might be. Ron looked at Francis, then smiled and finally laughed. No chance. There was no way he'd be going back to the UK without even having seen his daughter's body. Faced with Ron's stubbornness, Francis took a split-second decision. He had to get this troublemaker off his back, off the case and out of Saudi Arabia. He said, I'll take you now. And Francis drove Ron to the mortuary that evening, where a very helpful assistant took Ron and Francis to the refrigeration room and slowly rolled out Helen's body. Although Ron was expecting to see Helen's body, he was shocked by the emotions he experienced. He took a moment as he looked at his beloved daughter. Ron was a matter-of-fact sort of man and didn't show emotion easily. Even so, he had to hold back his tears. 
This was the young man he had spent a large part of his life looking after as a baby and child. And then, as she grew into a capable professional, he had admired her with pride as she gained her nursing qualification and success. Now, she was lying on a trolley in a foreign country, never able to talk to him again, never able to tell him of her successes, her hopes, the joys in her life or the challenges she faced. He never told her just how proud of her he was. He never told her just how much she meant to him. He wondered if there was anything he could have done to have prevented this. Then, as Ron looked at Helen's body, all these thoughts were banished as he noticed two things. Something that was missing and something that was present that shouldn't have been. What was missing were head injuries. If Helen had fallen from the sixth floor of a block of apartments, her head would have been driven into her chest or at the very least smashed to pieces. But as he looked at her head, it was not apparently broken or even fractured on either side at the front or the back. Any sign of this kind of injury was missing. No part of her body was staved in and no main bones were broken. He felt round the bones of her back, nothing broken there. There was no sign on any part of the body of any external bleeding whatsoever as you might expect from a fall. Her head, neck and feet were perfectly formed, apparently free of any serious injury. What was there that shouldn't have been were injuries on her forehead above the left eye. Halfway between the eyebrow and the hairline was a deep indentation as though a blunt-ended instrument had been dug into her head. Strangely, the insides of her thighs were bruised rather than the outsides as would have been expected from a fall. Why were the insides of her thighs bruised? He noticed something else about his daughter's face. It was curiously discoloured as though she needed a wash, but the discoloration wasn't caused by dirt. He thought it was probably bruising. There was the same deep discoloration of bruising on her right side. If Helen had died instantly from the fall, she couldn't have bruised as a result of it. The bruising must have happened before death. Why was she bruised so badly before the alleged fall? She would have had to have been hit pretty hard on both sides of her body to have got those bruises. As Ron came away from the mortuary, he decided the official account of an accidental fall from the sixth floor didn't make sense with the injuries Helen had sustained. Ron sat quietly as Francis drove him back to his hotel. Francis then broke the silence and told Ron that now he'd seen the body, he could be on that early plane back to Heathrow. Ron told him to forget it. He wasn't leaving until he was satisfied a proper autopsy had been carried out and her case had properly been investigated by the police. Francis exploded with anger, but Ron wasn't going anywhere, no matter how much the British Foreign Office tried to bully him. Ron didn't get the flight the next day, instead insisting that Francis take him to Medina Road Police Station again, this time to find out when and where the autopsy would be carried out. At the police station, he discovered that for an autopsy to be carried out in Saudi Arabia, he, as the closest relative, had to provide written authority. That obviously wasn't a problem. Ron asked if he could use one of the embassy typewriters, but to Ron's astonishment, Francis refused. Foreign office typewriters were only used for foreign office business. As far as Francis was concerned, Ron should return to the UK immediately. Helen's body would be returned in due course, and then the matter could be closed in Saudi Arabia 
and he and the embassy staff could get on with the important matters of state. It seemed to Ron, the Foreign Office and Francis in particular were putting every obstacle that they could in the way of Ron remaining in Jeddah and continuing his investigations. And this included refusing to lend Ron the use of a typewriter. Meanwhile, the hospital director had asked Ron if he would call in. Francis drove him. The director implored Ron not to make any statements to the press about the incident because he was concerned about the reputation of his hospital. Ron assured him of his cooperation and he and Francis walked out of the front of the hospital to return to the hotel. By this point, it was well into the evening at around 8pm. As Ron and Francis were getting into the car, a woman in a hospital uniform started shouting at Ron from across the car park. Ron stopped and looked round. Francis carried on walking and tried to hurry Ron along, but the woman waved at Ron, continued to shout and started to run towards him. Other members of hospital staff who were also in the car park started running towards Ron when they heard the commotion until he was surrounded by people. They had been waiting for him to come out of the director's office. The woman said, Mr. Smith, your daughter was a friend of ours and we want to tell you how she was murdered. This was the first time Ron had heard this word used about his daughter's death, although he had been rapidly coming to this conclusion himself. Francis interrupted. He told Ron he was taking him back to his hotel room now, but Ron refused and turned his back on Francis. He walked away with the group of hospital staff and Francis was left standing on his own by the car. Despite the fact that hospital staff had been strictly instructed by the hospital director not to talk to anybody about the death of Helen Smith, they told Ron that they suspected Helen hadn't fallen from the balcony and that it wasn't an accident. Most of them were medical professionals and many had seen both bodies before they were taken away. And with that knowledge, they dismissed the official versions of an accident caused by a fall from a height as implausible. They also told Ron about Helen's relationship with the Arnotts. She got to know them because, as regular partygoers, the Arnotts needed a babysitter and had asked Helen. They also held parties regularly in their own apartment but didn't invite staff from the hospital, always outsiders. After some time, however, they did start to ask Helen to the parties. They went on to explain that at about 5.30am on the day of the deaths, A hospital porter had gone out of the back of the hospital to make his way towards the block. As he approached the flats, he saw blood on the ground and looked up to the railings on the wall that enclosed the courtyard at the bottom of the block. The near-naked body of a man was impaled on the railings. His head was facing towards the building and his legs were hanging down towards the street. There was blood all over the place and the man was obviously dead. He was only wearing a pair of black pants. The porter rushed to get the doctor who, as he approached the body of the man, caught sight of Helen's body, fully clothed, lying nearby. The heat was already intense and the stench of the broken bodies was overpowering. The doctor then went up to the Arnott's flat to get Richard to help and as he knocked on the door, he could hear a lot of noise inside. When Richard Arnott opened the door, He said he knew about the bodies and was on his way down. It was impossible to get the male body free from the railings without hacking it to pieces. Everybody from the hospital who spoke to Ron was convinced the deaths were not an accident. 
As they pointed out, there was nothing wrong with the balcony wall from which they were supposed to have fallen. It was fully intact and undamaged. Just under two weeks after Helen's death, the Saudi doctor who examined Helen's body told Ron that he had been right to insist on an autopsy. The examination revealed that there was no evidence of any fracture to the head, neck, shoulder blades or spine, although the pelvic bone was broken. The top of the skull had also been removed to search for any signs of hairline fractures, but there were none. In light of these findings, the police would feel that it was necessary to investigate Helen's death in detail, as he was unconvinced that it was accidental. Satisfied that the proper processes were taking place in Saudi, Ron returned to the UK and awaited news from the Saudi police investigation. Around 10 weeks after Helen's death, Ron was at home when he received something unexpected. A parcel containing Helen's possessions arrived from Saudi. Ron started to unpack it and amongst a number of other things, he found Helen's diaries. As Ron read them, it became apparent that in Saudi Arabia, Helen had a new hobby, sea skin diving, which she did with the German and Dutch crew of Harms Salvage, the very people who had been at the party on the night she died. Helen also wrote about her relationship with a hospital consultant until she discovered he was married with children and she ended it, although he did try to keep the affair alive. Ron wondered if there could be a jealous and possessive lover involved in Helen's murder. It was about this time that an article was published in Britain's Private Eye magazine. They reported that, quote, the incident has been the talk of Jeddah and the generally accepted view, apparently encouraged by the authorities, is that the couple were making love against the balcony when it collapsed, sending them both plunging to their deaths. Both, it is said, were naked. The story about the balcony's collapse is nonsense, Private Eye claimed. The balcony, over waist-high and solidly built, was still very much intact, and it seems inconceivable that two people, however drunk, could fall over it without being pushed. Both Helen and the Dutchman were barefoot when found, but neither was naked. Despite the article, the Foreign Office continued to maintain Helen's death was an accident. Ron contacted newspapers, journalists and reporters trying to keep the story at the forefront of people's minds. Eventually, he decided a way of keeping the story alive was to get Helen's body back to the UK so it could be fully examined. So, in early June 1980, he returned to Jeddah to get the necessary papers signed and to make some more inquiries. He spent a couple of days interviewing a few more people connected to the case, taking more photographs of all the locations that were significant, like the outside of the apartment where she died, the hospital, and the railings. And he also spent some time gathering documents that were relevant. He then went to the British Embassy to start the arrangements for the return of Helen's body. There, he was met by Francis, but this time, Ron was in for a shock. Francis was accompanied by another man. Being ex-police, Ron had learned to keep detailed records of all conversations he had about Helen's death by tape recording them. Francis told Ron he had abused his welcome, and in future, whenever he came to the embassy, he would be denied access until he had been searched. So, Ron a British subject in a British embassy in a foreign country, trying to work out how his daughter had died, was made to stand as he was frisked by a security officer whilst being watched by Francis. Ron had only come to the embassy to get the necessary papers, so it was arranged that an embassy driver take him to see the governor of Mecca, the prince, to have the authorization signed. 
Ron and his driver set off for the prince's palace and on the way, past the serious crimes court where the Arnotts, who were still in a Saudi prison, had just been tried and sentenced. Ron thought this was for possessing alcohol, but he soon learned that Penny Arnott's sentence of 80 lashes was for adultery with one of the guests at the night of the party, while her husband and two children were asleep in different rooms. Ron's sentence of a year in prison and 30 lashes was for allowing his wife to commit adultery. Both were illegal in Saudi Arabia. Ron was surprised. He hadn't realised just what this kind of party was or what it had turned into. It also provided him with another piece of the puzzle surrounding Helen's death. He knew Helen enjoyed parties, socialising and having a good time. But Helen was as straightforward and blunt as Ron and it just wasn't the kind of thing that she'd be interested in. Ron quickly got the necessary papers signed and booked his flight home from Jeddah and went to the airport. As he approached the check-in, he noticed two police officers looking directly at him. Ron gulped. He didn't know what he had done wrong, nothing that he could think of. Perhaps they weren't here for him. As he walked up to the check-in, one of the police officers stepped forward. The police officer called out his full name, Ron Smith, and then marched him into a private room. Ron was pretty worried. Why was he being detained? After his recent encounter with Francis, he doubted he'd get any help from the British embassy. He had visions of spending weeks or months in a Saudi prison. The rolls of film, documents and audio tapes he'd gathered were all packed and it was these that the police confiscated as they looked through his luggage. Once they'd taken all of the items they could find, they released Ron. He was free to go. Strange. Surely if he'd done something wrong, he should have been arrested and charged. Ron implored the police officers to tell him who had ordered them to confiscate the materials and who he could talk to about it. He'd done a considerable amount of hard work and without it, he had no chance of keeping the case going or maintaining the interest of the press at home. The police told him that they were acting on orders of Prince Ahmed, Deputy Minister of the Interior. When they told him this, Ron was confused. How did the Saudi Arabian Ministry of the Interior know about the audio tapes and other items of evidence? Ron hadn't had anything to do with them until now. Then it dawned on him, they had been tipped off by the British Embassy's foreign office official, Francis. As Ron was free to go, he had a split-second decision to make. The plane was still on the tarmac. If he ran, he could make it to the departure gate and catch the plane back to the UK. Should he get his flight or should he stay and try to get his documents back? He had no money left to pay hotel bills or to get to the palace of the prince, but Ron decided he had to try. So, as the flight for Heathrow and home left Jeddah Airport without him, Ron made his way by whatever means he could to the palace of Prince Ahmed and asked to see him so that he could explain the reason for his visit. Ron didn't expect to see the prince personally. He thought he might be able to see one of the prince's assistants, explain to them and have his case considered in due course. Ron sat waiting for three hours. Then, to his astonishment, he was invited to sit next to the prince while he finished other business. He was going to get the chance to explain his case firsthand to the prince. Once the prince's business was finished, he offered Ron tea and then asked him to explain the situation. 
Ron told the prince that he was trying to find out what had happened to his daughter, who had died horribly, and he went on to describe the circumstances and that his papers, photographs and recordings had been confiscated by the police for the prince to inspect. Ron needed them back. The prince listened carefully to Ron's explanation. Then he replied. He told Ron that he greatly respected his determination to find out what had happened to his daughter. Family was highly valued in Saudi Arabia. However, he would be failing his duty if he allowed Ron to walk out of the palace with items that might compromise the safety of the Saudi state and that he had to retain all of the items recovered at the airport for inspection. The police then gave Ron an undertaking. He would personally supervise the examination of all of Ron's materials and would make a firm promise to Ron there and then that everything that was not confidential would be sent back to Ron in the UK for him to use in his search for answers. The prince then inquired where Ron was staying and when he was leaving, and Ron explained that he'd run out of money and wasn't sure where he'd be able to stay until the next flight home. The prince immediately summoned his assistant to get Ron the equivalent of £600 for accommodation and his flight costs, and Ron left the palace feeling he had been treated considerably better by the Saudis than he had been by the British authorities. Back at his hotel, Ron had arranged a new flight home, and as he waited for his taxi to the airport the next morning, he heard someone walking up behind him. He turned round and saw Francis, who was unusually keen to see him. Perhaps he was there to gloat at Ron being stopped at the airport, having all his photographs, documents and recordings confiscated, thereby putting a stop to his investigation. It was useful for Francis to have the Saudi police do his job for him without having to leave the comfort of the embassy. Ron squared up to Francis and loudly accused him of treacherously making false allegations that caused him to be searched at the airport. And then... Ron raised his hand, clenched his fist and launched it, punching the patronising senior foreign office representative of the British government full in the face, sending him spinning to the ground. Just over a year after Helen's death, Ron was back in Leeds in England when he heard a knock at the front door. Just as the prince had promised, a special messenger delivered a box from Jeddah with the items that the Saudi authorities had decided were non-confidential. As Ron sorted through them, he realised that the prince had sent every single photograph, recording and document Ron had collected. Not one had been classified confidential, Ron had everything he needed to continue his fight for the truth. Helen's body was now with the coroner in Leeds for a post-mortem and inquest. An inquest would be a major step forward for Ron because it would consider all the known facts. Ron and his legal representative met with the coroner on the 24th of June and to Ron's surprise, there was also the assistant chief constable for crime, West Yorkshire another senior police officer and two representatives of the coroner's society waiting to see him. Ron asked what they were doing there and they told him that they'd been ordered to attend on the instruction of the British Home Secretary so they could keep an eye on what was happening. It seemed that Ron was being watched very closely at the highest possible level of the British government. Ron then turned to the coroner and explained the reasons he was seeking a post-mortem and an inquest. Then, the coroner dropped a bombshell. 
He wouldn't allow an inquest and he wouldn't allow Ron to use his court as a mouthpiece for accusations that Helen had been murdered. As far as a post-mortem went, all he was prepared to do was sign an order for the disposal of Helen's body. So, no post-mortem either. It seemed to Ron that someone or some organisation was doing everything they could do to stop him from getting the truth. Ron told the coroner that if he wouldn't hold an inquest, he would have Helen's body moved to a private mortuary where he'd arrange a private post-mortem himself. On the 27th of June 1980, the local home office pathologist completed the post-mortem. Ron, at home, waited and waited for the report. Day after day passed with no news. Then, 19 days after the post-mortem, the morning newspaper dropped through Ron's letterbox. Ron picked it up and walked through to his front room to read it. As he sat down, something on the front page caught his eye. To his astonishment, he read the coroner's press release summarising the pathologist's findings that parroted the official line from the Foreign Office that the death was caused by fall from height and that there was no evidence to suggest anything other than accidental death. It went on to say that in those circumstances, there was no reason for an inquest. No attempt had been made to contact Ron to tell him what the findings to his own daughter's death were. It seemed as though every effort had been made to surprise him and exclude him from making any comment to the press about the pathologist's findings. By now, the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was also involved in the case and released a letter from her office supporting the Foreign Office version of events. Ron now seems to have the entire British state against him. The British Foreign Office, the British Prime Minister and the coroner. Faced with this, most people might have decided to give in and give up. Ron, sitting alone in the front room of his small house in the north of England, clutching a newspaper with very little money left in his bank and few friends to help him, instead decided to go on the offensive. 15 months after Helen's death, Ron's campaign was helped by the private eye who published another article about Helen's death, headlined Massive Cover-Up. Part of the article raised important questions about the way Helen got her injuries. It suggested that Helen and the Dutch sea captain Johannes Otten were caught up in a drunken orgy at the Arnott's flat, which was getting out of hand. Helen said no to getting involved further, and she was then beaten up and raped. Later, her dead or unconscious body was thrown over the balcony to look like an accident. Johannes was killed because he had been a witness. Even though there was no way of knowing if every detail was accurate, no one questioned their story or prosecuted them for defamation. What also became clear is that the home office pathologist who had carried out Helen's post-mortem so recently had also totally failed to consider if her injuries were consistent with rape, being beaten up or strangulation. He had simply followed the line that Helen had fallen from height and made her injuries fit this theory. And this theory failed to account for many other injuries on her body that were consistent with slaps or punches with a fist or being struck on the head by a large, blunt instrument. And it was on the basis of this failed report that the coroner had continued to refuse an inquest. Then, another astonishing article appeared, this time in the Sunday People newspaper that had interviewed the pathologist. 
In the interview, he questioned his own conclusions based on the evidence that he'd found. Quote, If I were to say that Helen Smith's death was an accident, I would be a liar. The injuries to her face were inflicted by blows, possibly while her throat was being gripped shortly before she died. There is doubt in my mind about the way Helen met her death. If someone falls accidentally head first as though leaning over the balcony, there are extensive head injuries. If someone deliberately jumps feet first, there is what we call a bang of marbles effect, where the impact forces the vertebrae into the skull and bursts it. Helen showed none of these injuries. The pathologist was, in effect, questioning his own report and suggesting that Helen's injuries didn't fit the official account of an accidental fall. As soon as this article appeared, the pathologist was in serious trouble with his superiors and was warned he could face criminal proceedings. But the rebuke was too late. The truth was out there. The Foreign Office reacted hysterically, immediately issuing a categorical denial, but this only increased public interest in the story. The press smelled a cover-up. Ron knew by now he couldn't trust the authorities and commissioned an independent post-mortem of Helen's body. This was the last thing the Foreign Office wanted, but they were powerless to stop it because this was Ron's legal right. But they could still try to block an inquest. Ron managed to persuade a renowned professor of forensics of science, Jorgen Dalgard, to come to the UK and carry out an independent post-mortem. The coroner was horrified when he heard that another post-mortem was going to be carried out, this time by a foreign person who might make things awkward, so he insisted that two British pathologists attend the autopsy at the same time and provide their own analysis of Professor Dalgard's findings. Unfortunately for the coroner, the two British pathologists agreed almost entirely with Professor Dalgard's analysis of Helen's body. In summary, he concluded that a possible cause of death was bleeding in the brain caused by a blow to the left and top of Helen's skull, a blow that could not conceivably have come from a fall. Findings that completely contradicted everything the Foreign Office had claimed since the day Helen died. The day after Professor Dalgard's report, British newspaper headlines read, Nurse Helen's death was not an accident. In the light of the mounting evidence, the Foreign Office could no longer sustain the argument of accidental death. Quickly, unceremoniously and without explanation, they now said that they had no view on what had happened to Helen. Ron continued to work to keep Helen's story alive and campaigned for an inquest, with the press now on his side, now that it had been established that Helen's injuries were not the result of a fall from height. Surely the coroner would have to direct that an inquest was held. Ron awaited a decision. Two years and three months after Helen's death, the coroner had reached his decision. Inquest refused. He maintained that as Helen's death occurred outside of the UK, it was not within the jurisdiction of the English courts, so there couldn't be an inquest. Private Eye then published an article examining the legality of the coroner's decision and proved that the coroner, far from upholding British law, had broken it. There was nothing anywhere in the coroner's act which limited the coroner's jurisdiction to deaths that occurred only in Britain, and there were a number of cases where inquests had been held. Also, this particular coroner had himself held at least two of these kinds of inquests, 
he had ruled against his own practice. Months of legal argument ensued and Ron's legal team wrote to the Attorney General asking him for a public inquiry into Helen's death. This, unsurprisingly, was also refused. Finally, Ron took the case to the Court of Appeal, arguing that the coroner and the Attorney General had no right to set aside a law passed by Parliament. This was the last chance for Ron. If the Court of Appeal refused an inquest, there was nothing more Ron could do. On the 31st of July 1982, three years and two months after Helen's death, the judgment of the Court of Appeal was declared. One, the coroner was wrong to refuse an inquest. Two, the divisional court was wrong to uphold the coroner's decision. Three, Ron was in the right to demand an inquest. And four, the Court of Appeal ordered the coroner to carry out an inquest. An article then appeared in the Sunday Telegraph, a newspaper that usually supported the Conservative government of the day. It was sensational. Murder highly probable. Government officials who have studied a detailed report about the death of Helen Smith now think that it is highly probable that the young British nurse was murdered after being raped. The evidence strongly suggests that Miss Smith, 23, was set upon by several men, beaten, sexually assaulted and then killed. However, officials in Whitehall do not believe this is a case which would support a court conviction. The suspects are not believed to be British, in which case they could not be tried in this country. The Dutch sea captain was also probably murdered as he went to help her. The inquest happened at Leeds Town Hall and was outlined on the 18th of November 1982, three years and six months after Helen's death. A jury made up of members of the public would hear from a number of those involved in the case, consider the evidence and then decide whether Helen's death was one of three things. One, accident or misadventure. This is the verdict the Foreign Office desperately wanted as it was the only one that would vindicate their position. Two, unlawful killing. Ron's preferred outcome was this as this could lead to further investigation by the police and diplomatic authorities. This verdict would be defeat for the Foreign Office. Or three, an open verdict, meaning undecided or unable to make judgment on the evidence available. Although Ron would prefer an unlawful verdict, at least an open verdict would mean that the case was not closed and would be another defeat for the Foreign Office. This was it. This was Ron's last chance to get some justice for his daughter. First up in court were the pathologists. They stated, 1. Helen's face and head injuries were sustained while she was alive and caused by blows to the face with a fist. 2. The head wound was caused by 7 to 10 repeated blows with a heavy object or by banging Helen's head repeatedly against a wall or on a piece of furniture. This caused a hemorrhage in the cerebral membrane, so Helen then became unconscious and died. Ron's barrister intervened and pointed out that this was an important finding because unconscious people don't then get up and fall over a balcony wall by accident. 3. Wounds on the neck might have been caused by someone holding Helen's face and neck. 4. Her feet were blackened, suggesting that someone had been dragging the body by the feet. 5. Fractures on the upper arm bone were caused by someone pulling a dead or unconscious body along the ground. There was also band-like bruising about 2 inches by 3 inches all around Helen's right wrist, 
caused by somebody holding the hands and fingers using moderate violence. All this suggested that someone had pulled Helen's body along the ground, gripping it from the right wrist. The injuries to the thighs and genital region were consistent with forceful sexual activity. The bruises in the pubic region might have resulted from very rough handling, even kicking, or from forcible face-to-face intercourse with a heavier partner. Helen's genital injuries were the same as injuries found in both living and dead female victims of sexual assault and rape. They were caused by the victim's thighs being prized apart by the rapist's knees. 7. The small bruises in the pubic region may be due to pressure of fingers or hands in connection with sexual activity. 8. Taken together with the bruising of the vulva, these injuries suggest that violent sexual activity had occurred. Helen was found wearing a black silk dress with her bra in place and her pants on one limb only, typical of a rape victim. The barrister arguing accidental death asked whether the injuries the pathologists were attributing to violence and rape may have been the result of rough handling of the bodies at the murder scene by the police or at the mortuary in Jeddah and nothing to do with an alleged attack. All three pathologists were adamant that it was extremely unlikely that the injuries were caused by anything other than violence. With regards to the question of a fall from height, there was disagreement between the pathologists. Thalgaard told the court that there was no great fracture to the skull, neck or the spine. Both the head and arm were unfractured and he would have been surprised if she'd fallen more than 10 feet. Even if she did fall, she would have had to have been thrown over because she was already unconscious. She wouldn't be standing or talking or making love after that blow to the head. She couldn't stand up. The fracture of the pelvis might have been caused by kicks. Again, the barrister arguing for accidental death asked if it was possible that Helen and Johannes had fallen together and when Johannes's body was impaled on the fence stake, Helen's body hit his and bounced off, landing on the ground. This would then explain the lack of impact injuries to Helen's body. The pathologists explained that they had carried out experiments and found that would not happen because in any fall, the different weight and physics would cause two bodies to fall in very different ways and land in different places. The result was that the pathologists confirmed suspicion of non-accidental death. Next up were members of the Harms boat crew who were present at the party. They all gave almost identical accounts. They'd seen Helen talking with Johannes. Perhaps she was a little bit drunk. No one saw her go out onto the balcony, either alone or with Johannes. And the crew all left about 2.30 in the morning. They couldn't see Helen or Johannes and assumed the two of them had left together some time before. The party was friendly, happy and harmonious. Mr Arnott was in bed, but Mrs Arnott and some others were still in the main room. Then, members of the foreign office were questioned. One told the inquest that when he visited Mrs Arnott in prison after the event, she said that she had gone into another room of the apartment that night to have sex with one of the party guests. And at that point, Helen was alive and well, although she did say that some of the boat crew were pretty wild. Next, the hospital employees gave evidence explaining that Johanna's body was terribly injured, not just where the railings had penetrated him, but also on his face with blood dripping from it to the ground. Helen's body seemed almost completely free of serious injury and no blood on her. The bodies were separated by some distance on the ground 
and Johannes was naked except for a pair of shorts and underpants. And finally, Richard Arnott, the host of the party. He told the inquest that he'd gone to bed at two because he had an operation to perform the next day. He said he'd been woken up at 5.30 by his wife, who shook him, saying, something terrible has happened. He then went to the balcony, looked down and saw the bodies. He went downstairs as quickly as he could, going to Helen's body first and felt her pulse. She'd been dead for at least a couple of hours. The body on the railings had a pair of underpants down on his thighs and a white blood-stained shirt, which was completely unbuttoned and hanging over his head. He called the authorities and then rushed up the stairs and helped the others to clean the flat and get rid of the alcohol as he knew the Saudi police would search. As he cleaned up, he noticed Helen's shawl and handbag in the dining area and he found what he assumed were Johan's glasses in the living room. With all the evidence presented, the jury now had to make a decision about Helen's cause of death. The coroner stated that they had a simple choice. He said, believe the witnesses and disbelieve the pathologists or disbelieve the witnesses and believe the pathologists. The bruises on the face and legs, he told the jury, were easily explained. He said the Saudi pathologist who carried out the examination in Jeddah had not seen them, so they weren't there. These were nothing more than marks which had been made after death, caused by handling of the body in the mortuary. The pathologists had led us all on a wild goose chase, suggesting the injuries had been sustained through violence. Experts can be wrong he said. He told the jury that what had happened was that Helen and Johannes went out onto the balcony to have sex and Johannes, with his trousers down around his ankles, had fallen over a sun lounger at the side of the balcony and over to the wall with Helen clutching onto him. Because they were clutching each other, they would remain clutched together during the fall and as he became impaled on the railings, Helen had fallen from him to the ground at his side and that during the fall, Helen's head struck a glancing blow. That was it, all easily explained by the coroner. A verdict of accidental death was assured. The jury retired to consider their verdict, but it wasn't an easy task and had been made much more difficult because of the coroner's summing up. Time ticked by and it wasn't until they'd been deliberating for seven hours that the jury returned. The four-person rose to give the verdict. Open verdict. It was impossible to conclusively decide on the evidence presented together with the coroner's summing up. The coroner was completely taken aback. He was used to directing members of the public on their conclusions and he was not expecting his explanation of events, which should have led to a verdict of accidental death, to be rejected by the jury. The foreign office were also shocked particularly Francis, who had been one of the people called to give evidence and who sat listening to the verdict. All their years of hard work to achieve a verdict of accidental death had failed and in the process, they'd been shown to be incompetent and also unconcerned with the welfare of British citizens abroad, the people they were supposed to serve. Whilst Ron would have preferred an unlawful verdict... An open verdict at least meant that Helen's case could not be brushed under the carpet by the British authorities as just an accident. It left open the question of what really happened to Helen on that night. It was a vindication of Ron Smith's fight against the Foreign Office and the coroner. 
Other information that wasn't presented to the inquest came to light during Ron's investigation and cast continuing doubt on the motives of the British government. Copies of the official Saudi police report were received and translated by the Foreign Office and then sent to both Ron and the coroner. They looked exactly the same as though they were photocopies, but on closer inspection, Ron discovered that the document sent to the coroner omitted six words, which if included, would have alerted him to discrepancies in the Saudi post-mortem and would have required him to investigate the case more thoroughly. Ron had the two documents examined by an expert who identified that both had been typed on the same typewriter at the Foreign Office. One version only having the vital six words omitted. The version sent to the coroner. Mistake or a conspiracy? When the question was put to the Foreign Office, they argued that they had messed up. The second incident concerned a copy of the Saudi's coroner's report that the Foreign Office had also received, translated and published. The Foreign Office version consisted of two pages and seemed to support their argument that Helen's death was an accident. But the Foreign Office had omitted a further page of the report which added considerably greater detail that would have been invaluable to the British coroner and police. The Foreign Office pleaded that they had made yet another mistake. This must have been the only time in history when the British Foreign Office of Her Majesty's Government had argued that they were just incompetent. So the question remains, what can be made of this unfinished jigsaw of Helen's death? Paul Foote, in his comprehensive study of the case chronicled in The Helen Smith Story, offers some possible answers. First, that it was an accident, a fall from the balcony, just as the coroner, the foreign office and the British government had maintained. But obviously, Helen's autopsy contradicts that conclusion. Secondly, a fight broke out between Helen and Johannes, perhaps because he was trying to assault her, and then one of them fell off the balcony, taking the other with them. The problem with that is the fall from height, which the pathologists maintain didn't happen. Third, if we believe the pathologist's findings, Helen was violently attacked and fatally injured by one or very likely more than one person, given the severity of the sexual assault and the injuries. In this case, suspicion points to the people at the party. Did the boat crew try to involve Helen in group sex and, when she refused, forced her, injuring or killing her in the process? Was it one or more of the other guests? The killing may have been witnessed by Johannes, who tried to stop the attack and in the process was killed or pushed over the balcony, or both. Helen's body could have been taken downstairs and laid close by Johannes to make it look like they had both fallen. Or fourth, Helen could have been murdered by someone else, perhaps a jealous, jilted and married lover who visited Helen at her flat on the roof terrace on the night of the party, where a fight broke out causing Helen to be fatally injured before being interrupted by Johannes, who was then killed by the same person. We know from Helen's diaries that she had a relationship with a man who she discovered was married and then ended the affair. Another question is why the apparent attempt at a cover-up by the British authorities? We know that after a long period of strained relations between Britain and Saudi Arabia, the British government was working hard to repair the damage and complete a lucrative arms deal that would have resulted in valuable foreign income, as well as creation of a lot of jobs. Any bad publicity would have jeopardised this arrangement. Also, 
There was a widespread public belief at the time that the matter had been hushed up because certain high-ranking officials from the Foreign Office were involved in the events which had led up to Helen's death, perhaps by being guests at the party. If they were, what did they see? Did they take part in what was going on that evening? If that was true, it would have been devastating for the British government. Ron always argued that there was a cover-up involving the British Secret Service and continued to fight for answers throughout the rest of his life. He refused permission for a funeral for Helen, believing the body could contain vital forensic evidence of murder and that if he could persuade the British authorities to reopen the case, it would lead police to who he believed was her murderer or murderers. Without his permission, the body couldn't be laid to rest and instead was cold stored in the mortuary at Leeds General Infirmary, the longest any body has been preserved in the UK. As months turned into years and years into decades, Ron continued his campaign, but never persuaded the authorities to reinvestigate Helen's death. By 2005, 25 years after Helen's death, Ron's health began to deteriorate and by 2009, his kidneys had failed and he started to receive dialysis four times a week. Ron was now 83 and Ron's wife, Gerald, wrote to him. In her letter, she pleaded with him to allow Helen's funeral. Neither of them were getting any younger and with Ron's poor health, she was concerned that he might die before their daughter had received a proper funeral. 30 years and six months after Helen's death, she was finally cremated at Wakefield Crematorium in Cricklestone. Even after her cremation, Ron continued to try to get the case reopened. He said, I will never give up in this cause. I have been fighting for 30 years. I will never accept that there has been no cover-up. At the age of 85, Ron Smith died on the 15th of April 2011. Through his determination and investigative skills acquired from his days in the police service, Ron proved that it is possible for members of the public to challenge the authorities and get their voice heard. Also, he changed the law. By taking the coroner's office to the Court of Appeal, it was established beyond doubt that British coroners have a duty to investigate the death of a British subject, even when the death occurs outside of the UK. This was a particularly important ruling that was applied years later in the case of the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. And finally, the case of the violent and horrific death of a young, vibrant and capable young woman who had most of her life ahead of her remains open. It's not been possible for the Foreign Office or the British government to ignore Helen Smith or to try and silence speculation about the cause of her death. With the hugest thanks to our guest writer for their help with this episode. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.